It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for tuning in today. Happy New Year to you, and I hope you had a great holiday season. For our first show of 2023, I had the great good fortune to speak with one of cycling's elite racers about his life, his family, his history in the sport, and his thoughts about the bicycle industry. Wayne Stetna, in fact, the entire Stetna family, have had a stellar career in not only racing, but also incredibly valued input into what we ride and race today. Wayne's phenomenal memory of people, events, and topics will dazzle those who have an interest in curiosity and cycling, me included, and I thought I knew some stuff. From coining the phrase, never miss a shift, way back when Shimano introduced its first index shifting package, To his comment that his favorite bike was always his most recent bike, Wayne has seen the evolution of bicycles up close and personal. I hope you enjoy this extended conversation. Hello, Wayne. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest. This is really exciting. I'm glad we get to talk. Well, I'm excited to be here, so uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. So, um... I didn't even know where to start. You know, I sent you this. Everybody knows I send a lot, a list of questions and talking points. And I just kept on going with you because you have such an amazing history. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us where you grew up and you sort of have a cycling family and how you got into cycling and a bit of the Stetna cycling family history. Oh, we could go for an hour on this. <laughs> I moved to Indiana, Indianapolis when I was in uh, going into junior high and started racing there with the Speedway Wheelman. Um, My dad was a bike racer and a speed skater in Cleveland, where I was born. And then uh, I lived in uh, north of Fort Wayne after I was about three. I have three younger brothers. When we got into bike racing and also speed skating, all... uh, four brothers have been national cycling champions. And I was inducted into the Bicycle Hall of Fame in 1999. Probably the biggest honor there was that I was inducted at the same time as Eric Hyden. I think most people can recognize that name as somebody that has achieved at a true superstar level. My brother Dale also inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, I sent you a picture of our entire family lined up, oldest to youngest, and and an interesting size progression uh, when I was still 16 in 1970. So we we raced all across the Midwest. Actually, my dad was in racing sports cars, uh, and I was building engines and transmissions in junior high. And then he decided that... uh, bike racing would be better for for, um, all of me and my brothers to participate. 
And so that got shelved and we went into bike racing. So I have a question. You were inducted into the Hall of Fame the same year as Eric Hyden, but I listened to what you're saying. And I also see some relationship there between you and there was somebody else who was speech. Maybe, uh, maybe it was Eric. That's who I was thinking about. Okay. Yeah. So you, did you speed skate? Uh, yes. I raced for Champaign-Urbana and um, when I was racing, Bonnie Blair was uh, just 10 years old and she <laughs> was phenomenal. Yeah. And I was never as good at speed skating as I was at uh, cycling, but I had dreams of being on the Olympic uh, speed skating team. There was a meningitis epidemic that delayed the Pan Am Games a year from Brazil and pushed it back into Mexico City in 1975. And I wound up being out of school, wasn't in college at the time. And so I was speed skating and staying with Jimmy Okowitz and Sheila Young, other, other cyclists I knew. And I was starting to think maybe I would uh, have a shot to to really do something at that. And this 16-year-old came along and annihilated everyone on the national team. And I realized I would never be as good as he was at 16, and he would get better. And I also said, I'm going back to race my bike. And I told everybody, he's going to be a problem when he races a bike, because I'm sure he'll get around to that eventually. And nobody knew how much better Eric would get. It's not that hard. You just train six hours a day for eight years, and then you win all the medals. Except for a fluke hockey game, what he has done in sport will never be duplicated because he won the shortest sprint in Olympic record time. He was the dominant speed skater for everything up to um, 1,500 meters. No one could touch him. Those were his races to lose. And that's take the time it would take Usain Bolt to run 300 meters or Michael, Michael Johnson. And then he had no chance, especially the 10,000 meter. It takes the same time as running a 5,000 meter. And now you're talking about the Ethiopians and the Kenyans at the Olympics. Those are completely different athletes. It's not possible. And yet he set an Olympic record in all five events. I know he was always very frustrated as a cyclist that he was just too big to get over the mountains for a world road championships. The courses he went to didn't suit him. He did win the, the sprint jersey one year in the Giro. And then his uh, sister Beth, who was not really suited for outdoor skating, she was women's uh, road champion on a climber's course. And she won the course and she was naturally suited to uh, climb mountains on a bike and be a bike racer. And Eric had to lose 20 or 30 pounds and he was still too big to get up the hills. Yeah. He had, he, his legs weighed more than most people. So <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Beth because when I talked with Eric and it's been a few years, he said, you really need to talk to my sister. She was such a much better cyclist than I was. He actually mentioned that. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you. You really don't need much introduction. Uh, I'm speaking with Wayne Stetna. He is, his family is 
you know, like the, it's like the Kennedys in politics. You're like the, the family in cycling. When I think about the icons of cycling, your whole family comes up. So I want to ask you something about racing in Indiana. Did you ever, did you go to IU, first of all? Well, first of all, racing in Indiana, there wasn't much racing in Indiana, but the Midwest nationally was a hotbed of racing. And um, yeah, I won the state championships a lot of times and nobody in high school had any clue that bike racing existed. I did go to IU and I was on two winning teams for a little 500. That was what I was going to ask. First year I rode 144 laps and uh, was in a bad crash and had to chase back. We almost went a lap down and it was... um, it was a very difficult race. Uh, I can't say I've ever ridden a harder bike race in my life than getting, than making back that lap. Uh, the second year, we had a team that qualified, I think, second in qualifications, and I wasn't there. I went to train. I, I was at a bike race. We wound up winning by two laps. We had a team we could have won by a third lap if we'd wanted to push it. And uh, after that, I was banned. Um, actually, all the rules came in to ban me and my brother, Dale. We would have been on the same team in 1976 after we'd both been on the Olympic team. And um, I can understand that um, that wouldn't have been a competition. So, Oh, well, <laughs> but I just wondered. My third brother, Joel, who was on the Junior Worlds track team in 78, he wasn't covered by any rules because he never had a senior license. He wasn't on the national team. He wasn't categorized. There's a rule at IU. If you've ever been a member of a Junior Worlds track team, of a Junior Worlds team, you're ineligible to race. And that was passed to prevent him from riding from another fraternity. But uh, it, it was an amazing atmosphere during um, the, the movie Breaking Away is one of the great movies of all time. And my brother Dale and I were riding the Tour of Switzerland and the World Road Championships in uh, Germany, the Nürburgring, the uh, car race track, while that was being filmed. But my father, my brother Joel, and my youngest brother Troy were all in the movie as extras in the road race scenes. And my roommate, at Delta Chi, Gary Rybar was the double for Dennis Christopher. And somehow through the magic of uh, movies, they made a guy that wobbled and couldn't ride a straight line to save his life actually look fairly good as a bike racer. But when they were going uh, 55 or 60 behind the semi, that was Gary Rybar. And then, and then the big... Um, the, the big technical issue that everybody laughs about when they cut back and forth is that uh, Dennis Christopher was spinning along in his small ring when they cut to him when Gary was uh, flying along in his big ring. So Yeah, I, I, I remember somebody mentioning that, but that was way down the road after people were just raving about the movie. I love the movie. I don't know how many times I've seen it. You know, there are so many great lines from that oh, movie. So, and guys was the the bad Italian. And Eddie Van Geis, he was a Delta Chi. 
he had, uh, they had finished second and he'd been trying to get me to ride for years. And I joined the Delta Chi fraternity after he had graduated. But uh, he was responsible for uh, getting me to IU because um, I, I wound up, uh, I wound up graduating first in my high school and had a lot of opportunities to go anywhere. But uh, IU is a great school, and um, and they had bike race. So why not? Right, win, 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 win. Let me ask you a question, which has has I think you're oh, going to have to say one other thing. Yeah, um, sure, sure. One of the other Italians, John Vandeville, I was on the '72 Olympic team with him. He's on the track. His son, a Christian Vandeville, is uh, of course the TV commentator and was. Uh, top uh, world tour pro finished fourth in the tour de france so it was just interesting to see you know people that i knew so well in that movie and it's become a cult classic you know i mean it, it gets rave reviews every time it comes back around so i am assuming in the day everybody was racing steel bikes you were probably racing a steel bike i want to know maybe we should talk about racing yeah let's talk about racing first what do you see different about racing today than when you were at the top of your game and racing all these world races? What are the big, besides the equipment? I mean, we know it's the equipment, but what about the racing itself? There've been a lot of changes. And when I was racing, I found many times it was easier to win a big race in the U S than a small race because when all the riders were there, then you weren't the only person watched. And if everyone's marking you, if you try to go in a breakaway, everyone chases. If you don't go in a breakaway, everyone looks at you and the brake goes up the road. It's so hard to stay in contention, if, especially if you don't have a good team. And so the, the tactics change and it gets really interesting. I've always told people that compared to uh, track and field to running, uh, cycling is like comparing chess to checkers. Great comparison. Stage racing is three-dimensional chess because you've got the teams, you've got overall, you've got the individual stages, and you need to try and figure out how each guy is riding because they're going to ride differently. One of the things that our family did when we would come back from a race, and for years, um, even when Dale was younger as a junior and he would ride the senior race, I wouldn't see him for 30 miles in a criterion. And then I'd look around and I'd be watching the race. Oh, I think it's, uh, I think a breakaway could go now. And I'd look back, he'd be on my wheel. He had noticed that it was time. And if I, if I went and he wasn't on my wheel, he wasn't going to go across to me. But if he went with me, he'd be there. And if you ride at the front, it's very easy to, um, waste your energy. Every little move looks important. If you sit back a little farther, you can see that everybody chases everything. They've got a lot of energy. And as soon as they start to hesitate, if you're the favorite, if you make the first move, that's probably still not going to work. It's going to be the second move after that. And once your competition gets tired and you're really good, you look like a tactical genius. It's like, um, karate um you know breaking boards you just put everything into one all-out attack 
and you break the race apart. And it's uh, the right time to attack is when people are tired and you decide to go all in. And then when you get to another level and you race people like Greg Lamont, even as a junior or a young senior, he was amazing. And that he would make an attack and it's hard and he would make a harder attack. And it's like, oh, okay. And then before you realized it, then he would go all in. And um, yeah, that was, um, well, Greg was, Greg was special because he could, he could sprint against anybody could beat Davis Finney in a criterion sprint. He could ride the board track. He could time trial with the best in the world. And he could outclimb anybody. I mean, that's just that's just not quite right. You know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> that's <laughs> not quite right. <laughs> and so yeah, he he achieved what everybody had only um, you know, we could have these daydreams and he went out and he did it. Yeah. So why is it different from then and now? I mean, we see. Well, um, I started to get into that. And first of all, the introduction of heart rate monitors and then power meters changed everything in terms of. I ran track and cross country. I read a lot of books about coaching, uh, training intervals, and I applied that to cycling. And I could tell I could pace myself. I knew how hard I was working. I knew how to do intervals effectively. Other cyclists didn't know that. And suddenly, you don't need to know anything. You just need to send your power meter file to a coach, and everybody knows how to train. And so that really raised the level. And in the last 10 years, there's been a phenomenal increase in the ability of coaches to, especially with pros and with the recovery that they have and the nutrition of how to train at a much higher intensity, very focused, where you don't do one or two many intervals too many. You do just enough, and then you can recover. And before, it was always a bit of an art knowing how to train. And and that, I always felt like I lost a big edge because I knew how to train. When uh, 10 years ago, and I was riding with Peter, and he was um, had first turned pro, and I was using power meters uh, a lot of the time, and now it's part of the job. You know, you have to understand how they work. And uh, and once I got used to my perception, I could guess my power within ten watts, as long as I wasn't exhausted, uh, very accurately. I, I knew I knew how many watts I was putting out just riding along based on perception. And I would play a game where I would tell Peter, based on his lighter weight, I would guess his wattage. And he was always shocked that I'd come within five or ten watts of how hard he was pedaling at any given time. You know, once you once you start to blow up and you run out of gas, then you, your perception is you're pushing on the pedals as hard as you can, but you're no longer making any power and um and you can see that as well that you can no longer elevate your heart at all you're you're just done don't you think that um just like an experienced rider n- doesn't need to know what his cadence is anymore because he learns it or she learns it and then knows what he or she's doing the power becomes the same thing if you know yourself well enough and you've been watching your power meter for x number of months weeks years you know what you're doing, right? Well, 
a lot of times in a race, it's useful just to check and to see. And you also start to get a much better handle on when you're suddenly getting tired and you're not recovering. Where, you know, if you're one of the favorites, you're no attack's going to work until you're actually really a bit tired as well. Because if you're rested, then everybody else is rested. They're going to chase you. You're going nowhere except waste energy. Right. And, and then all of a sudden, if you feel like you're pushing hard and you're looking down and you're seeing that you're not making any power, it's like, I think I need to uh, change tactics. I'm in survival mode now. No effort. It's not my job to chase people. And I'm going to have to try and put some calories, some, uh, you know, some carbs back in the system to because the fuel tank is, uh, for whatever reason, it just run out. So it's, it's always helpful. And, you know, you train with that in a race. You don't necessarily want to be um, limited by what you think you can do. If you're going to race somebody, sometimes you just have to go as hard as you have to go and, and see if you can make it where there's a top of the hill or somebody's making an attack. You don't know how hard, how, how long they can sustain it. And if you're, it, once you're dropped, you're dropped. You don't, <laughs> unlike, especially if it's several riders, you don't get a chance to come back by riding your pace unless it's the mountains and you're a great descender or, I mean, you know, if you crack yourself, then you get dropped worse, but sometimes you, you learn that you can make uh, an effort that um, you can stay there. You can bluff the rider. And um, I've done that. Uh, my brother Dale's done that. Uh, people think that, you know, you, if you're afraid for them to attack, you go back to the front. You let them know that you want to up the pace. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I guess um, he's not in trouble. And then and then you can uh, survive a bad patch. Uh, cycling is interesting because it's a tactical game and the strongest rider only wins in a grand tour. And even then, only if he doesn't do anything really stupid. So when I spoke with Greg LeMond and asked him the same question about what's changed so much, he said that the one thing, and I don't think he liked it, was race radios. Oh, that's absolutely changed everything because then you can be a moron um, for uh, tactics. You don't have to be able to think at all because the cleverest tacticians for the last couple of decades are sitting in the car behind reading the race. And they can't tell how you're feeling. So sometimes they may not be able to tell you whether you should go or not, but they can tell you who's doing what and why. When the teams can communicate and uh, chase everybody down, it used to be you had to stay close enough to the front to see who was up the road. If you didn't know who was up the road, that's on you. Right. Or they got to have somebody there to know. And so uh, that was part of bike racing and it makes it much more likely for breakaways to succeed as well when they're not getting all of the time checks in their earpiece, but uh, just on the um, written on the boards as to the numbers and the, and the gap. But, but the number, well, it's the number of people now that are good. When I would race, there would be maybe two or three people you really knew 
were a problem to to beat, and there would be maybe ten that might win depending on how things go. And now there could be twenty, thirty, forty riders in a race. Um, you know, you get to the classics in a hard enough race, then it finally weeds out. But uh, for shorter races, criteriums, um, and and so you make plans in a bike race, and you never have a clue. It's all contingency plans. And that was the value when I was younger of re-riding every race with my brother. And we continued to do that. We didn't have to talk much during the race. We didn't have to talk much before the race because after each race, we had looked at, okay, when I attacked there, who chased me? Was that, was that what he should have done? Who did, who should have really been chasing what could we have done different? Because, but every move that you make changes everything down the down the road, and so it all becomes a reactive game. And if you puncture or you miss a feed or something else happens, all of a sudden the race changes complexion completely. And um, you know you can lose a hundred mile race in the first five or ten miles if the wrong combination goes up the road. Right. Wow. Interesting. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about equipment and then we'll start uh, wending our way toward present day. We're speaking with Wayne Stetna. He is with SRAM. If you think he was with Shimano, he was. But we'll talk about that, too. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back and we're going to pick up where we left off with Wayne Stetna and we're going to talk a little bit about equipment. So when you were racing, you were racing steel bikes, silk tires, down tube shifters, clips and straps, leather helmets. I mean, things that are just like a million times different. So what do you think? is the most monumental or are the most monumental changes that have made cycling either better or worse in equipment? Oh, well, to go back a little bit on your question, you know, I did race steel bikes and um, the bike I made the 72 Olympic team on um, over half a century ago, I was 18 at the time weighed over 20 pounds and we had super light fragile rims and tires for light uh, rotational weight so they accelerated quite well um who made that bike when we were we were racing twins i rode a colnago file and then i rode custom bikes with cecil behringer um some really lightweight prototype equipment from a um a machinist and a, a crazy italian in detroit pino maroni pino maroni he was crazy <laughs> yeah well he was he was uh incredibly insightful in terms of um using different uh, materials and uh he actually made a titanium frame where on a lathe he made tubes out of bars and he cut the lugs out of blocks. And I don't think anyone else could do that. We were building a bike once at his house for nationals. Um, 
and I needed a uh, offset campy um, brake brake mounting bolt. And he said, "Go out for a training ride. Come back in an hour." And so I went out for a spin. I came back. He had taken a a he had machined out of titanium within an hour an offset um, drop bolt drop bolt for a campy record break. You used to have to hunt and peck to find those, and he just made he just made one. <laughs> made it out of titanium. Making it out of steel is hard enough. So uh, I I started um, in 1976. John Howard got connected with uh, Exxon for their Graphtec frame, which was carbon fiber tubes and uh, steel lugs, and we raced those for uh, two or three years. Uh, I uh, two national road championships, 76 and 77 on those frames. And then after that, I went back to uh, steel frames. Then I had a TBT about the time that Greg was riding those. And I I never could ride the all aluminum bikes like the Elan. They were too whippy. I had one of the first Kestrels. I was, uh, my favorite bike was always my latest bike and I never saved bikes. I sold all of them, which reminds me, I have a lot of bikes to sell now, a lot of interesting bikes, but you know, uh, we'll talk about that and we'll let people know if you, if you're selling bikes, I'll bet there's some people out there go, Oh, I would love one of his bikes. Your favorite bike is your most current bike. How interesting. Most recent bike. I raced a number of, um, I had a Trek that when they were um, aluminum lugs with carbon tubes. And uh, that was a really great bike at the time. Then I wound up racing on uh, some Giants, uh, TCRs, and uh, various specialized tarmacs. Those were always product test bikes as well. I have a, I have a Frankenbrake tarmac that is a disc brake on the front and a rim brake on the rear. I think it's a tarmac five. That's interesting. Well, you, the front brake, you get double rotors. On the racetrack, a motorcycle racer never touches the back brake. It's there for regulation. The same thing. When you're descending a mountain, the back brake's almost useless. You touch it, it slides the wheel. I would give this bike to people to to uh, and ask them what they thought about the disc brake. And they love it. And I'd say, you, you realize you're riding a rim brake on the rear. And they'd be shocked because they had no idea that it rides completely naturally. My favorite bikes for a long time were Cervelos. I had an R5 California and an R California. And both of those were prototypes. I was good friends with the builder, uh, Don Gichard. And those were very far ahead of their time. The frame with the bottom bracket weighed 700 grams. And that was in um, 2010. In 2012, um, and actually I loaned that bike to Peter in his first Grand Tour when uh, he was riding for Garmin. He and Christian helped Ryder Heschel win the overall title, uh, the, the pink jersey. He's, um, I guess, the only Canadian Grand Tour winner in history. And so um, I wound up, I had to get relevant, and I had a Parley RZ7, a phenomenally fast bike, unbelievably aero. Um, 
it was so fast on some of the downhills that if I just did a normal tuck with my nose on the stem, people behind me would have to do a super tuck not to get dropped at 55 miles an hour. And a lot of the bikes have become all around aero bikes now that um, you can get uh, four or five miles an hour faster at high speed uh, when you're up 50, 60 miles an hour. Currently, I'm riding an Athos, and uh, that's a climbing bike because I get dropped on the climbs being an old guy now when I try to ride Fondos. And, and that's a 600-gram frame set with a disc brake mount on the back. And it's the most stable, most comfortable, best handling bike I've ever ridden. So the technology really, really matters. But that's only half the story. And the other part are the... The components, the brakes, of course, now that they've gone to disc brakes. If my brother Dale had been on a disc brake bike when he had his uh, severe TBI crash in, I think it was the end of 20, 2012, possibly, or 2013, he would have been, it would have been no big deal because a bicycle with disc brakes stops nearly as fast as a motorcycle. Bikes stop really, really fast uh, with rim brakes when you're at 15 up to 20 miles an hour. It's easy to go over the bars. But um, what you don't realize is that you're not generating any stopping power once you're going 40 or 50 miles an hour. If you have a rim brake bike, you can pull the brake lever all the way back to the handlebar and you'll stop as fast as a disc brake bike. And it's shocking because you can't flip yourself at that speed. It, you just can't stop hard enough. Um, but then you don't know when it's gonna bite. And so you can't judge when you have to back out of it. Because as you slow down, at some point, the rim brake's gonna bite. And people that ride V-brakes on mountain bikes know that it's super easy to do endos at low speed, um, but there's nobody home once you're going fast. And that's what's so great about a disc brake is that the same effort always gives you a predictable response and the right amount of brakes as much as your tires can use at any speed. So that's been quite a game changer. Although if I'm riding in most situations in the dry, I'll save a pound and a half in a Fondo and I'd rather go with rim brakes and not get dropped because I'm still not going to get dropped on the downhill. Right. If, uh, well, it, it depends if the stars align. I used to school Peter 10 years ago, 15 years ago when we'd ride my roads on descending. When he came back from the Giro, he'd been used to chasing Nibali down the mountains and he had learned that he didn't need brakes for anything. And dropped me worse on my favorite roads on the downhills than the uphills. I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to ride at that. Especially since you don't know the roads closed and, and Dale had his accident and, you know, his crash with a car that was stopped in his lane coming around a blind turn with, with a car coming the other way and nowhere to go. So, you know, it's not a bike race. Maybe the GoPro uh, tagline be a hero doesn't apply if you're not being paid for how fast you're going that day and it's just for fun you've got to uh, you got to think about what you're doing um, 
What are some of the other equipment game changers? The biggest change was index shifting by far. And that's what put Shimano in the game because a complete system became much more, the whole became a lot more than the sum of the parts in terms of how it worked. And you needed to have the whole system. And now component manufacturers design everything as a system. And even the brakes are part of the system with the shifters because the levers determine how you need to design the calipers. When I joined Shimano, it was just before they launched six-speed index. And everybody in all the shops knew that they didn't need this. Everybody knows how to shift. And then people would ride it. And they would be stunned because it's like, the, you know, instead of um, trying to find the gear, it's like a push-button radio. You can't miss. I coined the term never miss a shift. And it allows a rank beginner, a total novice, to shift as well as the best pro to a point. I mean, we would put uh, bikes on a trainer at the trade shows and people would get on and shift gears. And uh, when we later we introduced uh, electronic shifting, um, which was also a huge big deal, but not nearly to the extent of indexing. And um, I can remember people getting on the bike and they'd go through the gears and it would be bang, 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 bang. And I'm thinking like, what's going on? They have a given load. I was just riding that bike. I would get back on the bike and I would pedal it. I would trigger the shift to always occur when my legs were at the top or the bottom. It's natural. You, you adapt to that as, a, as an elite rider. And how well you adapt to that usually is an easy way to judge the rider's level of experience and expertise. I would shift at the top and the bottom and it would be seamless and quiet because I was shifting while there was almost no load on the system. Shimano, the guy that I was working with to go from six to seven to eight speed wound up eventually doing, being tasked to, to do pedals and shoes. And um, shoes are really difficult to do well. That's uh, it's an incredibly complicated uh, challenge to make a really good shoe that has enough support, is still light, and then to be in the market, it's also a fashion game, and you have to have the right price points and the right models. Um, I'm really glad that when Shram bought Time, they decided not to do shoes. <laughs> that, that would have been a there are so many good players out there now. The world does not need another shoe brand. I'll tell you, as a retailer, it's one of the most difficult product categories there is. Because not only do you have models of shoes, think about the size runs you need. And you're always out of the one that does or doesn't fit. Yes, it's a really, really difficult category. And I, too, am glad SRAM decided not to get into shoes. I mean, Shimano Shimano did, you know, we were a CD dealer for years and years and years. And then we were a Karnak dealer, which I really like that shoe. And now they're gone. I feel sorry for retailers right now. Well, if it's in an independent store and it's not something being forced by a, a brand that owns a store, Specialized and Shimano, I think, are the two really 
best brands of footwear. And uh, in terms of value and in terms of uh, performance. So there are so many different choices, just as there are so many different bike brands that um, it's interesting. The market has weeded out. When people ask me what's a good bike brand, I will say, go test ride some. But it's like the automobile industry. All the weak brands are gone. If you're still a player in the market, you have good product that's competitively priced and offers consumer value. Otherwise, nobody would have bought it. You'd be you'd be history. And we've seen that happen. In terms of other products, um, my buddy, my buddy that did pedals got also began making Shimano wheels. And so one of the jobs that I had at Shimano for the last two decades was to benchmark all the wheels, all the competitors, all the top competitors, anything that I thought was really interesting that I was curious about. And if a competitor had something I wanted to ride, then um, that's a problem if uh, if your company doesn't offer that. I started testing some of the new ZIP uh, TSE, the Total System Efficiency wheels that uh, started with the 303S back in 2020 and realized this is a game changer. This wheel for $1,200 retail with a lifetime warranty and the low pressure that the wide rims allowed, it's just a game changer. With the different tire contact patch, you have to forget everything you think you know about tire pressure. I tell people I'm running 55 pounds of pressure and it's faster. And we have the data that shows if you put more air, even on a smooth road, you roll slower. But if there's any pavement joints or rough surface, more pressure always slows you down. And with a long, thin contact patch versus a wider patch, you have to run more pressure or it doesn't roll efficiently. And you're more prone to flats. Yes. Well, with the low, with the big volume, you, um, you get better traction, you get better comfort. And like a wide rim on a car tire, a, a wide rim on a car, the tire never folds over. Right. The steering is mind bending. It's, it's so precise. As soon as you descend a hill and go around a corner and go, go fast, you have so much more confidence and control to place the bike exactly where you want. And that is a self-reinforcing Thing. Descending is about confidence and being smooth and calm. And when you get nervous and twitchy, then you get more nervous and more twitchy. And then you cannot go around a corner and you cannot comfortably ride fast. And then and you, you waste an incredible amount of energy. That's, that's all so true. But of course, you've been out there doing this for a, a gazillion years at that level. No, well, it makes it for me. I, I went faster with more control and and I leave a margin of safety now. I'm not I don't ride on the edge because what's the point? But all of a sudden I realized that I can go a lot faster and still have that margin that if I puncture or something goes wrong, I can still miss the rocks and the sand and the holes and change my line and I'm okay. You mentioned that these zip wheels were $1200, they've lifetime guarantee. And they're amazing. Do you think bikes are start out as too expensive right now? 
are they have we outpriced a lot of new people in the sport? My answer would be no. And I'll give you an example. Um, I used to go through three or four pairs of shoes a year if I rode them in the rain. You can buy a $200 pair of carbon fiber shoes now, which is less than $50 was 50 years ago. And you can ride them for four or five years. You got a thousand, maybe 2,000 miles out of a chain back in the 90s. I, I'm a great advocate for some of the lit, the newest wax-based lubes. Originally, uh, uh, none of the wax-based lubes were any good at all, uh, other than they were clean. And with Squirt, I consistently can get, um, on the Shimano chains, I was getting eight to 9,000 miles before it wore out. The chain's uh, even more durable. I have a guy on a mountain bike, uh, one of my testers in Southern California, was testing an Eagle Double X chain, and at 5,000 miles, he couldn't measure anywhere in the dirt. So now you're talking about drivetrains that if you uh, keep them clean with a wax-based lube, rather than having the grinding compound of more conventional lubes that's always on, and you can't wash it off enough to keep it from being grinding compound inside the rollers, is that uh, drivetrains are running, um, you know, 10 times longer. I'm saying, well, Dan Overin used to be uh, 400, 500 miles on a chain when he was racing back in the 80s, and it was done. That's true. People will pay $100, $150, 200 for a pair of running shoes. True. But I go into, if you go into... Uh, Walmart and you buy a bike that has a cosmetic suspension fork and disc brakes and it's $200 and it has the derailleurs and wheels and the whole bit tires obviously that's that's a uh, not really a useful bike you know it's not possible to make a bike for that price when i made the 72 olympic team the bikes we were racing would have retailed for $1,200 and up, depending on the wheels. And that was five decades ago. That's true. You can buy really good racing bikes now for about $2,000. And um, the value and the price, uh, I mean, the top end continues to go up and you can easily be well over 10000 but if you want to get into um, a durable bike, you know, you don't need 12 speeds for that to get into it. Um, I think that the supply chain is really uh, coming out of Europe or out of Asia instead of Europe has changed everything to be much, much more affordable. In terms of purchasing and what the, what the wages are today, it's less. Hmm. Interesting point. I didn't I didn't equate cost with wages, which is something, of course, you have to think about the whole picture. I got a degree in economics. Oh, okay. Well, I can't I can't compete with that right now. (laughs) Let me remind listeners again, we're speaking with Wayne Stetna and we're going to talk about um, something that's changed for him. Oh, I I wanted to go back and one pick up one more thing. Oh, Uh, sure. We didn't ride with uh, eye protection 
uh, sunglasses. And that is a big deal. And uh, I think that made cycling better. And uh, also the helmet technology. I was looking at a picture recently when I rode the 74 Amateur Worlds in Montreal. And I realized I raced that without a helmet because we were in Canada. We were allowed to do that. That's what the pros did. And now the, um, the helmets are cooler than bearhead and far more aerodynamic than a bearhead. And you got five-star crash protection. So it's win, win, win. I would say it's a no brainer. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need your brain to protect your brain. It's so true. And it's interesting that you say eye protection, because when I think about photographs from that time, you guys weren't wearing eye, eye protection. I'm thinking today, how could you possibly even go down those incredible descents and your eyes aren't like burning out of your head with tears, you know? Yeah, well, um, I will tell you that all the track racers with the same similar helmets and glasses on the track, it's a bad thing because they all look the same and the crowds can't pick out the riders as easily. <laughs> that's true. Oh, that's. That's one negative. Um, <laughs> uh, one other thing I want to mention that I think was huge is step-in pedals because it's so uncomfortable. And a lot of people are nervous to try it. You get stuck, you fall over. It's Everybody's done it. When I put somebody new onto a step-in pedal, I make sure that they practice 20 or 30 times getting in. And it's not to practice the entry. It's to get the reflex of the exit. Right. And I have found that on a mountain bike, when I'm climbing and I start to stall out and I'm clipped in, I may be able to still get over it. And, and if I'm at a 45 degree angle, I've had enough practice that I can release and put my foot down almost as quickly as if I had a flat pedal and catch myself. We would train people in a in an indoor trainer. We'd put them in an in, put their shoes and pedals on, and put them in an indoor trainer. Tell them to close their eyes and practice cycling and your efficiency so much to be clipped on. I mean, I I drove once to a ride I was going to do in Glendora Mountain Road up toward Mount Baldy, and uh, I had forgotten my cycling shoes. I wound up riding step in pedals with my running shoes and that was quite challenging trying to maintain more than uh, 250 watts and the the thing that was the biggest eye-opener was how uncomfortable i was without having a really good pedal shoe interface on the descents it was like i was very nervous about uh, going around the turns so sram has time pedals a lot of people didn't realize that uh, SRAM bought that in 2021. And several years before that, I had evaluated the X-Pro pedal with iClick cleats, and I decided that was the best system on the market. And, uh, I had told Shimano that the time is better because it offers the lightest weight, uh, comparable weight to speed play or to the look keel, and at the same time, it has the stability of the Shimano, laterally. So 
you don't compromise any power transfer at all. And but you can feel the lightweight, like riding a super light pair of shoes. It's a very noticeable difference, like light riding lighter wheels. And so if somebody is thinking about drivetrain and they want to go faster, they're going to be a racer. If you're looking for your components, your brakes on a road bike or a gravel bike, your brakes and your components to make you faster, you're looking in the wrong place. Because you go fast and all of those products are great. And the Shimano shifting is great. I had a large part in that for over 30 years in development of product. I'm really proud of all the products I've developed at Shimano. I now think that SRAM is going to the next level on a number of things, but SRAM systems are more intuitive. The shifting logic is simpler, the experience for the rider not having to think about which button to push. It's just like your car, you push one on the right to go to a harder gear, the left goes to an easier gear, like the Shimano Sprinter switch. You push them both to get to the chain ring that you're not in. And now you can take a wireless blip and put it somewhere on your left side and use one button to toggle the front derailleur to where it's not. So the wireless blips have finally allowed SRAM to play in the game of adaptive bikes that uh, previously Shimano was the only system that you could put all the shifters on one hand for somebody that had any type of a problem that they needed to operate all shifters from the from the same side. I want I want to talk about more with SRAM, but I want I want to make the transition from Shimano to SRAM. Let's take another short break and when we come back, we're going to get into where Wayne is now where he came from, from Shimano. I mean, he was with Shimano for 37 years, I think. And it, it was a shock to the entire industry <laughs> when you made that move. And I have a little tiny SRAM story to tell when we come back. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. are back on the Outspoken Cyclist. We're speaking with Wayne Stetna. We've had such an amazing conversation so far. You have so much in your head. You should write a book. Early, I guess it was earlier this year, I guess it was Bicycle Retailer came out with a press release that said you were leaving Shimano and going to SRAM as a senior field guide. Now, I have a little story about SRAM. Many, many years ago, I was giving a presentation in Chicago and a woman came up to me, very well-dressed, very handsome woman, and said, uh, gave me her name. I cannot remember it today. And I said, oh, well, what company are you with? She said, I'm with a new company. It's called SRAM. And I'm like, okay, that's a weird name to begin with. And she said, we are going to be a dominant component manufacturer in the bicycle business. Now, this is back in the 80s. And I'm like, how are you going to compete at that time with Shimano and Suntour and Campagnolo? And even in those days, you even had uh, people like Zeus still out there, you know, all of these, all of these component people. And then they came out with 
I guess it was grip shift. That was them, right? Exactly. And then look at us today. So tell me why you left, how you left. I know you didn't leave on bad terms with Shimano, but what made you jump that ship and come over to SRAM? And then let's talk about where SRAM is now, because I have some really questions I want to ask you about SRAM's ideas that you can talk about. Um, at Shimano, I had a terrific job that was um, doing marketing, promotions, and working on product. Back in 2002, I was the vice president of North American Operations, and Kozo was the president, and he felt that the product team would do a better job if I was helping. And he said, I could ride my bike as much as I wanted to test product because he was confident I would still do all the other work. So I did a lot of events, fondos, um, marketing, benchmarking of competitors. And I was, I was involved in, in everything for 20 years. And um, as I watched SRAM go from double tap to e-tap that really put them in the game, for electronic shifting on their first effort, and then axis that came back with front shifting that now you could shift it under more than 100 watts, that it, uh, front shifting began to challenge Shimano. I had seen when I joined Shimano, they were a market challenger, but they, I thought they had a great future. And at the same time, now SRAM is a market challenger on the road and gravel side. And I think on the mountainside, uh, Shimano views themselves as a market challenger to SRAM. And it's accepted that SRAM is in a leadership position for mountain bike drivetrain. But uh, on the road and gravel side, which is where I'm interested, I wound up as a senior field guide. I'm the only field guide without a territory. I'm a kind of a national floater. And I report directly to Scott King. He's the S in SRAM acronym of the four founders, FK, Stan, and Mike Mercury. Somehow they came up with, uh, for FK and Stan, they came up with an R and an A out of that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the field guide was a very interesting change. Scott had a vision that he would take all the field guides in-house instead of having independent reps because there are a number of conflicts of interest and it just works better. And so for SRAM, the whole concept of field guide is that the rep isn't there to sell the dealer anything. The rep is there to help the dealer sell SRAM product. And if the dealer wants to buy from QBP or Holly or J&B, or Trek or whomever, then do that. We don't need to make a sale. We don't need to write an order. But if you want help with clinics, with uh, organizing rides, with advocacy, any type of training for customers or staff, then that's the field guide job. And my job besides some special projects that Scott has assigned to me, is to be the lead drop bar road gravel tech expert for all the field guides so that I can give them 
perspective on our competitors. It's, you know, you don't have any credibility. You, you could say, hey, you know, they do this better than we do. You know, if that's all you care about, you should buy those parts. But we do this better. And we do this better. And this is why, if you look at the whole package, it's a better value. It makes sense. I, I can see that because Shimano, first of all, limited where you could buy their components as a retailer. Mm, well, you can buy direct. Yeah, right. Well, it's the same right. Thing. There's not unlimited distribution. Yeah, okay. I guess. I guess. But, but see, the rep has an incentive, an outside rep, to sell you direct from the manufacturer rather than through a distributor. Rather than being a partner with all the distributor reps, there's a competition of an independent rep with a distributor rep True. trying to sell. True. I see that. And, and, and the focus should be helping the retailer reach consumers and grow the market and get more cyclists in your area. Well, and but you also mentioned a couple of things that are near and dear to my heart, including advocacy. And I know that SRAM and FK, you know, as I remember, they're, aren't they World Bicycle Relief? Yes, World Bike Relief. That's what FK and Stan both spend more time on that than, than anything else related to the business. Which is an enormously um, successful nonprofit in Africa and in South America now. Yeah, I talked to Leah a lot. Yeah. But more importantly to business in this country, you know, we have people for bikes and all the advocacy in Washington to get bicycle access and at the state level and to make sure that you have safe places to ride. And so that becomes really, really critical to um, to grow the pie and to increase sales. And the big thing we've seen also is e-bikes are such a game changer and more, uh, it's becoming more and more common to see shops where 50% of their dollars or more are from e-bikes. And I think that everyone is trending there in the near future because it allows people to ride together socially. It changes the social dynamic of stronger riders. The others can keep up and you can just enjoy cycling. Again, the key is access. Uh, with a mountain bike, you don't need shuttles. You can have as much fun going uphill as downhill. Where before there were certain trails that are completely unrideable uphill. Now those are those are doable. So what is SRAM making for the e-bike market? I didn't realize you were that involved in it, but apparently you are. Well, I'm just involved in that as a trend. Okay. Right now, uh, SRAM has drivetrains okay. and, and has no e-bike off. What about the supply chain? How is the supply chain right now? Uh, SRAM, as I understand, does not make anything here in the States. Um, or do they? Well, they don't make enough to make it a whole bike, so it has to come in. I think that there's still some uh, things that are assembled here. But yeah, it's uh, the supply chain is from from Asia primarily. I mean, a year ago, everybody's largest warehouse components Every, every bike manufacturer was in cargo ships waiting right. to work. And finally, those all started to land in 2022 as we came out of the pandemic. And demand has cooled off a little, but I'm, 
I think the glut uh, and the disaster that a lot of people were predicting that the sky was going to fall has uh, been greatly overstated. A lot of shops I know um, that I visited had seen that coming and they started to lighten up and cancel rather than have everything that was back ordered the last year hit in the second half of 2022 and um, coming into here to the, a lot of shops are pretty clean right now. So yeah, of course it's a challenge trying to manage, but I think we've seen that uh, most shops I've talked to, they're, they're back to normal business like 2019 or a little better and they can, they can get deals to help close the sale. They can, they can order just in time again. I know for SRAM, um, we have, we seem to have 70, 80% of things are in stock for immediate shipment. And there's stuff that's back ordered out a couple of months at the worst case. And there, there's a few things that are pushed out farther, but who knows what the orders are going to be on those lead times by the time it's actually time to ship. I'd, I'd say that uh, now we're seeing an increase in container ships again, right? When this, the supply of that was got constricted initially, and that's a big monopoly as well. So that's um, that's always a problem trying to get capacity in shipping. Right. So do you see any trends that SRAM is following right now that is going to change things the way, let's say, this wider tire, um, ETAP? Uh, those kinds of things changed? I think it's interesting that consumers and the market don't really know. They may want something specific. But, you know, the, the consumers in the U.S. were never asking for e-bikes. Nobody was asking for index. But when they realized how much better they could shift, it was a no-brainer. Nobody was asking for um, the STI with the integrated shifters in the hood road bike, but nobody wants to go back to down tubes or barns. It's that's here to stay. Nobody was after the Mavic and Zap, then all of the problems they had, nobody was asking for electronic shifting. I was having a running argument with Shimano for four or five years. They're wasting your time. This isn't worth it. I wrote a prototype in snow flurries in December back and forth on a, on a city street in Osaka, and it was trimming the front derailleur and it was like a two-pound mess hanging underneath the bottom rack, wires all over the place. And, and I, I wrote that, and I came back, and I was just laughing, and I said, never mind what I said. This is going to be phenomenal. And they told me, hey, we can make this probably within 150 grams of mechanical. And I said, well, it needs to be within 100 grams. When it was finally launched, it was within 50 grams. And then another generation electronic is lighter than mechanical. Right. So, you know, it's it's the type of thing. And, and you know, when you're introducing a new product and you're developing products, Shimano was always technology in search of a product. And sometimes reaching too far, I think. And I've really been impressed by the, how clever the SRAM engineers are to simplify the experience for cyclists. Uh, my buddy Dan Enfield at Slow Twitch told me uh, when I, we 
talked about SRAM even before I joined. He said, SRAM makes product for consumers and they make a few options for racers. And Shimano makes product for racers and consumers as almost an afterthought. And so they make options, but they don't have all the plug and play gear compatibility that SRAM offers where you can mix and match anything any way you want to go to get the gearing you need to ride your bike. Dan said that? Dan said that. Wow. That's so insightful. Well, Dan is one of the smartest people I know. He He's a character, but he is smart. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. You know, it never occurred to me, but as soon as you say it, it's like, well, yeah, that is how it is. Yeah. Now you, you, your experience, it, it just fits. Right. So I, I, we need, unfortunately, we're going to wrap this up, but I'm going to hold you to coming back and talking to me again in the future. Is that okay? Oh, sure. Okay. So I have three questions. And then the final one is about how to contact you. If, if somebody would like to, to do that, what's your favorite food? Um, You're going to say pasta. When I'm riding a lot, it's Italian spaghetti. Of course. <laughs> How about how about just when you're not riding a lot, just like enjoying yourself? Well, I eat a lot of yogurt and um, granola for breakfast and walnuts, and then I eat. Uh, I try to eat more fish than uh, chicken and meat. But I I am an omnivore, and uh, it was interesting. We used to people used to joke that. When our family had gone totally uh, vegetarian, that we ruined uh, three or four generations of cyclists. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, humans really are sort of omnivores. You know, you, you, you can't you can't take that out of them. What's your favorite music? Oh, I'm. uh, Back to my youth, I suppose. I like to listen to Beatles, Elton John. Fleetwood Mac and Queen, but then, you know, my younger brothers were in the Kiss and they have some great songs and there are musicians today that uh, are are good uh, for my taste, but uh, I just get back to those, that type of music. Classic. Whatever. Yeah. Do you have any pets? Um, I do not. I grew up, always had a lot of cats and thought I was a cat person. It turned out I'm more of a dog person, but <laughs> they are like a kid and I'm, I travel a lot. And, and so I do some dog sitting for a friend and that's like being a grandparent. You get to play with them and then you get to give them back. Right. So that's, uh, that seems to work out. I should have thought of that before we just got our last puppy, which we have a nine-month-old Aussie shepherd that is like insane. And he's been really good during this conversation. So the last thing, Wayne, is how can people follow you and contact you and maybe ask you some questions out of this conversation we've had? I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. Uh, I don't, that's at Wayne Staten on Twitter. I don't know what the future of Twitter is going to look like if I'm going to. Right. Elon's supposed to be stepping down as CEO. I I know, but uh, (laughs) with all the controls removed. uh, Right. Not clear where that platform's going to head. 
Can they contact you through SRAM at all? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Stetna at SRAM.com. Last name at SRAM. Well, this has just been a, such a fascinating conversation. I We've never spoken in the past before, but I feel like I've known you all these years, like 40 years. <laughs> now, now, what shop are you running? Well, my husband is a custom builder. So... Okay. We have not sold any production bikes, but he puts SRAM on a lot of bikes. He has a lot of clients who use SRAM components. Where are you located? We're in Northeast Ohio. You said you were born in Cleveland? Yes. Yes, that's where we are. Oh, okay. But I'm not originally from here, but I've been here most of my adult life. Yeah, yeah. I'm right here. He's he's uh, yeah, he's in just outside of Cuyahoga County in in uh, the northern county, Lake County. But it's it's Cleveland, basically. Yeah. For, for a couple of years, I raced a, uh, a custom Fatic built by Doug Fatic. Yeah, he was the one who taught my husband. <laughs> okay. It's a small world. And in order to get that bike. He asked me to come in and um, help shape the lugs and and be part of the build process. And so that bike was uh, that was more meaningful. But at least I learned exactly what a frame builder goes through. It was it's hard. Yeah, it's very difficult. So you also mentioned that you had some bikes for sale. I've got actually I've got the bike that uh, Peter rode the Giro on the first uh, that my first Cervelo uh, R5 California. It's a, it was a prototype of three that were built that only had internal cables. So if people are interested in any of your bikes, they can just contact you and and you'll tell them what you got. Yeah, and that specialized I mentioned, and I have a felt. Uh, cross gravel bike my first gravel bike super light but that specialized with the disc brake rim brake rear is a it's a very interesting bike and it's lighter than a double disc and unless you're on dirt or gravel you don't ever need disc on the back rim works fine well uh, we will we will post all of that information I have pictures that we're going to put up on our website that you sent me. Thank you very much. And I hope you and your family have a fabulous Mm -hmm. holiday and a very healthy and peaceful new year. Thank you so much. I look forward to uh, chatting further. And try to stay (laughs) No, you know what? We did just fine. Have a great new year. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. My sincere thanks to Wayne Stetna for taking time to talk with me today. I know we left out so much about him, his career, and his ideas about the bike business and the equipment that makes it so unique. But he did promise to come back and chat with me some more, and I'm going to hold him to that promise. As we ramp up the 2023 cycling season, I hope to bring you more great conversations on the countless aspects of cycling, from events such as the Once Every Four Years PBP, to the people who will participate in advocacy all over the country and all over the world. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app and leave a comment while you're there too. Log on to our website, OutspokenCyclist.com, for show notes, photos, and links. You can download each episode there as well. You can also follow us on social media at OutspokenCyclist. I want to give a particularly hearty shout out to John Carroll University and to WJCU 88.7 FM for continuing to support and host the show.
And of course, thanks to you for listening. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay well, and remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.